Half a day, independentistas. That is a hard word to get through. That was my fourth take. I'm not even going to front. Um, I just wanted to, you know, add a really quick disclaimer. Um, the audio in this podcast is terrible. I was using the uh, wireless mic for the first uh, half of the recording, and you're going to notice a little... Um, not necessarily a humming sound, but it's definitely, it's noise, and it's really irritating, um, and for that, I apologize, um, it was, it's, it's hard for me to listen to as well, um, I was sitting here for the past hour or so trying to edit this, and, um, it's terrible, that being said, you know, I got that out of the way, um, another really quick thing I, I want to share with you guys because I think we we have that sort of relationship now is um, one of the questions that came up by Andrew Gumatalto who is featured in this podcast was um, uh, regarding the Native Perspectives podcast and um, it occurred to me that you know like obviously if you guys follow that as well um, I haven't touched it in a while and by that I do mean the podcast um, it started as uh, a way for me to express uh, myself more personally um, and to explore other ideas that I didn't feel were as in line with, um, you know, Fanatsu. But I realized that that's sort of a disservice to you guys um, who've been following Fanatsu for uh, over a year now, you know. Um, I, I think I owe it to you guys to be more personable and to to share these things um, on Fanatsu. And these aren't things that should be exclusive to uh, another third-party project, you know. You guys deserve that. And, um, you know, always we're always grateful for, for you guys listening, for sharing the show, um, for if you're a patron of the show, then for contributing, uh, definitely. Um, so yeah, you guys deserve that. And I just wanted to say Sidzilus Masi. Um, yeah, now we'll, we'll get into it pretty soon. So the, the premise of these episodes, this is uh, the radical reading. Oh, also, you're going to hear my voice crack a couple times. I think I'm coming down with something. But um, yeah, this was recorded at the radical reading session that we just launched a couple weeks ago. This was our second meeting. Um and this just happened last night at a coffee sled in Haganya. Um, and that's where we'll, we plan to be meeting uh, every Thursday um, for there's a, quite a number of readings in the, the Dropbox uh, email um, that was shared with you guys if you uh, have messaged us on Facebook. Um, so, yeah, for, uh, for as far as I can see into the future, we'll be meeting there on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Um, to go through radi radical readings. Um, yeah, if you can, stop by, um, you know, join the discussion. If not, though, uh, these podcasts, which we'll, we will be recording there. Um, God, that's so annoying for you guys, especially that my voice cracks. But um. If you can't make it, these podcasts are supposed to be sort of supplements to the reading list. And, um, 
you can follow along with us. Um, we sort of, well, we try to break down the concepts as much as possible. Um, and yeah, Sizos Masi to our Patreon subscribers. Um, if you can, if you are financially able, you can still join. Um, we'll be launching the uh, Chamorro uh, podcasts very soon. I need to get with Maget on that. Um, and also, you know, especially now that we have this reading group out, uh, maybe video content uh, for Patreon, Patreon subscribers. Um, yeah. Relative to, to the materials. So who knows? We'll see. But yeah, you can get on there for, you know, as little as a dollar uh, creation or really as much as you feel inclined to to donate. I mean, if you wanted to um, donate a hundred dollars a creation, I would not stop you. I would message you and I'd be like, hey, are you sure about this? Um, but I, w I would definitely not stop you, you know, but if you are not financially able to, um, you can, there are many other ways that you can contribute to the show, uh, sharing our episodes on social media, giving us a nice rating on iTunes, um, following us on SoundCloud. Yeah. Those are all things that, that, um, make a difference really. So see this Mossy again. Uh, let's get into the show. Warning. Sintipanatsu. Uh, we are here at the uh, Radical Reading Group. Uh, this is just something we just kicked off as part of the um, Independent Media Subcommittee. Um, and, you know, we're expanding our territory. Cool. We're expanding our territory. Our, um, yeah. Java Junction. Yeah. Snuck in the coffee slot. So we're, we're, um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, joining us is um, is Andrew Gumatalto. Buenas noches, buenas noches. So yeah, we're we're insidious in that way, in that we're we're subverting uh, uh, popular culture, and um, we're taking up the space with our our ideology. And uh, yeah, don't tell. I was kidding, <laughs> but uh, so yeah. So um, today's reading was um, Antonio Gramsci. His uh, um, notes from his prison notebook, right? Prison, note prison notebooks, yes. And so, I don't know. I don't know how many of you listening are familiar with Antonio Gramsci. There's a. Um, but if you're if you're a social scholar, you're you're usually familiar with this stuff. If you're a Marxist, you definitely know his stuff. If you're like a like a real purist Marxist, then you probably don't like Gramsci at all. Um, but for post-Marxists and so on, Gramsci is a, is a very important sort of uh, intellectual moment. He represents a very important intellectual moment. And so, uh, I mean, before we get into that, though, uh, the independent reading group that we are talking about, um, it's really just 
you know, to use this time to kind of expand our thinking, expand our thinking about things, look at um, other situations in the world, other struggles, the rhetoric that was used, the strategy that was used. And so we have a long list of readings to choose from. And nowadays Gramsci is usually an important place to start because even, and this is what people say about all big philosophers and all big social scientists and so on, is that even if you haven't read them directly, you refer to them in your speech. The, you refer to their grammar in the way that you talk in the sense that they didn't necessarily copyright and produce things, but they, they articulated stuff in a way which then, um, which makes sense. And then everyone kind of comes back to that. It, it is a hegemonic, a hegemonizing <laughs> sort of thing that, that, that happens there. And so with, uh, and that's why Gramsci is, is important in that sense. Um, and then, you know, one thing that we need to think about here in Guam, though, is, is how can we, you know, how can, how can we get ourselves connected intellectually to those other movements? What lessons can, can we learn to sort of better our own movement here? And that's one reason why sort of we're, we're having this, this type of reading group. And then I know that sort of the, the gentlemen here with me preparing for grad school or in grad school have sort of their, their own reading clusters and their own ideas on those sorts of things. But one person, so one person did contact me after sort of uh, trying to publicize the reading group and did question the relevancy of of studying the work of a Italian communist who wrote like a hundred years ago in a completely different context. And so I wanted to know you guys' thoughts on that actually. What do you have to say to people who say that um, ours is an indigenous struggle, it's a decolonial struggle, um, Marxism is so much about class and so on, or all these other movements have their own character to them. What is it to, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first off, I think there's definitely, there's gems in, um, you know, these different pockets of, uh, of um, academia or just intellectual work, you know? And then also uh, the idea of intersectionality, um, just because we're reading a uh, communist work, um, you know, what is communism? Communism is, uh, the answer to the the wrongs of capitalism, right? And so there there's still that power dynamic there. And um, you know how are they how are they um, picking apart things? What are they analyzing? How is that applicable to what we're facing out here as an indigenous group? And also, what we can add on to that. Um, uh, earlier, you talked about how um, in in academia, a lot of times we we reference um, uh, older works, um, older scholars, without even realizing it. And uh, I totally, I did that in my thesis um, before I'd even read uh, *Manufacturing Consent*. I was talking about you know, um, you know. Uh, political hegemony and uh, you know the idea of uh, colonization and being this um this mass agenda for all uh, corporations on Guam and that was something that uh, Herman and Chomsky picked apart decades ago and uh, but there there wasn't a, a colonial tinge to that um, you know but still you know it was a, a pre-existing concept so 
and another thing just to restate the value of this reading group um i i got a little i got a gem uh last class last thursday um i i had no idea that angel santos was uh so critical of mainstream media uh decades ago you know so um with the work that i want to do in grad school uh, that that's uh, very important for me so andrew well um this type of uh for me i mean uh, this is my first time uh, being involved in uh and uh, this type of a uh, reading group, I've never been involved in a reading group, and so uh, a lot of these these material is very much new to me. But um, um, I guess I'm just here to just expand my 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 perspective on on what are the possibilities of 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 uh, decolonial uh, thought and uh, views and how we can connect with. Uh, uh, the other historical perspectives and uh, how we can uh, align and see if there are alliances in, in terms of uh, bridging uh, um, bridging these gaps. I remember um, this past summer you went to Scotland, right? For the that music conference, Ireland. Um, were there were there nuggets of uh, of knowledge that um, like you saw in other in other people's uh, presentations, or their struggles with preserving their own um, languages through through music um, that you could take back here? Oh, okay. But last summer, yeah, I went to a conference in Ireland. Um, okay, let me see what I remember. Oh man, there's there's so many things that of course yeah there's there was a lot of uh, um, uh, issues of uh, of colonization and how and how do we unpack it and in terms of uh, the the um, the the uh, ethnomusicology because it was an ethno ethnomusicology uh, uh, conference and just coming from my background you know like you have this big thing where you have western music and then you have and then you have uh, the world the rest of the world and know uh, and you know like and it's i think it's it's kind of problematic if you if you just have if you if you bunch the music of the rest of the world as just the rest of the world you know um so i was i was just exposed to so many different types of uh uh, initiatives in terms of uh, uh, what, what's the term that they use there in um, in cultural heritage, intangible cultural heritage, whether it be dance, whether it be uh, music through uh, specific instruments, or just the, the the language as as the medium for for revitalizing um, uh, culture, and. Um, um, it it opened up my my uh, my viewpoints and my my perspective as not only pursuing a, a music as a as a performative uh, aspect, but also um, the context and the historical roots and 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 how does that come into play and how can we use that to uh, revitalize and and uh, perpetuate you know. Uh, Indigenous culture and use it as a as a as a as a starting point to move forward and to remind you uh, um, the 
the public of uh, you know uh, of indigenous culture. So yeah. <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> no, I I mean this is the this is one of the things about sort of uh, a discussion group like this is in the Dropbox there are I think two Irish readings in there. And so uh, both of them are, one of them is, it's two eulogies on the death of a, an Irish sort of patriot, and then the other is the statement of an Irish patriot on the, on, the ver on the eve of his execution, so his last statement before he's executed. And so some of the, like sort of the, and when I was choosing all of these different readings, like I was drawn to the, to certain Irish rhetorical orations and so on in an interesting way because for me one of the things we know about ancient Chamorros is that when somebody would die especially if they were a great warrior there would be a huge oration speeches about them that they were like the greatest warrior that ever lived and stuff and like the sun would never shine again we would an, a sling stone would never hit a target again because you're gone now and stuff like that or you know you had the your your spear was so great you could pierce the sun, you know, stuff like that. You know, it's totally and total hyperbole. But then um, thinking about, thinking about sort of what that means though, it's the developing of pride, it's the developing of power in your attachments, in your heritage, in your belief and so on. And then, because um, if we look at so many of these struggles for independence, for decolonization, they there is in some of them like in the irish example there's there's violence right but there's also similarities in the way in which they speak and so for example in the the eulogies about the the eulogies for o'donovan rossa which i included in the dropbox there's so many great lines like one of the lines there is basically that an unfree ireland shall never be at peace and so you make clear, basically, that the unrest, the problems, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not us, it's not our actions. Our resistance is not the violence, it's not the problem. The problem is that we are not free. And you, you, you make it a central issue like that. It's like, um, for, for Puerto Ricans, what they used to say, what uh, Latin Americans used to say about Puerto Rico as one of the last colonies in the Caribbean and Latin America, was that La Puerto like Latin America is not complete without Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico is not free. And so Latin America will never be free and never be complete until Puerto Rico joins it. And that type of rhetoric is something which, that we in Guam, we have to kind of think about. Because so much of the rhetoric that we use is very, like American. Like, and, and not, not even, like really nice American. It's kind of like, it's kind of like your average, the way your average Chamorro pretends that they're like a white person. Mm. You know, like your average, your, I still traumatized every day by the fact that sort of somebody I may be tangentially connected to on Facebook posts some like white nationalist meme and then a Chamorro who I'm tangentially connected to will post the exact same white nationalist meme. And it's kind of like, what the hell is the matter with you? Don't just, don't just 
What do you have against Muslims? What do you have? What do you have against African Americans? Like, why do you hate them so much? But, but anyways, so just taking it, taking our rhetoric, even our critical rhetoric, out of the American context. Oh. And then, um, and then putting it in a context which is more appropriate for our position. And so, but, anyways. Ireland. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Man. Um all right. Let's uh let's jump into into Gramsci. I mean I wanna I wanna talk in tangents and I wanna expand on that. Maybe maybe a little later. But um just one of the things that I picked up uh really quickly uh was he he's making a distinction between uh, the types of intellectuals in a movement or in in a, in a society and then also the functions that they have uh, so because I, I did not get a chance uh, to to fully uh, read read it um, because I'm playing Legend of Zelda currently um, could, could you just uh, break it down really quickly I mean also there's a number of different things you can get from Gramsci and so one of the books which if you're, if you're kind of interested in, now, you know, if you're kind of interested in learning more about this, because you have to, there's ways that you can take Gramsci out of his context, and there's the way that you can put him in his context, and both of them can have value. But one of the books which I found very fascinating in understanding more about what he was writing about, it's called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy by Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe. And so, because, when you think about it, and that's what's hard for probably a lot of the people in the group is when you first read it, it makes you feel like you're reading an Italian newspaper from like a hundred years ago because he's talking about all these things in his context. And he's referring to all of these struggles that are happening elsewhere in Europe and that happened a generation before him. But, but that's, in a way, that's what's really powerful about it is that is that Gramsci was writing this at a time when critical people, those who had kind of taken up communism as an ideal, when they were struggling with how to make it effective, how to use it because it didn't seem to be working. Because for stuff that we've talked about, and then this is something which will which resonates with us too, right, is that just because you tell somebody the truth, just because you tell somebody they're oppressed, it doesn't mean that they're going to change. It doesn't mean that it affects them like that. And so you had all of these different people who were arguing these different strategies, like that this is the approach that we should take. And you had certain thinkers, socialist and communist thinkers, saying that what we need to do is we need to sort of just stay as pure as possible in our Marxist thought, which means economy only, focus on the proletariat, focus on workers. You had others who said we need to, we need to make deals with the bad guys. We need to basically back certain politicians, even if they don't really believe what we believe, we need to build coalitions with them. And then, and then others were saying that, of course, it's the cultural stuff. 
is that actually it's the, the bad consciousness, the false consciousness comes from all these cultural things. So what we need to do is we need to take over the ways that people produce their values and their understanding of the world and then we can get them to join our side. And so Gramsci is in the middle of all these conversations where some people are advocating we need to revolutionize everything, others are saying we should just reform things. And he is sitting in prison and he is writing about all of this, getting out his ideas. And so some of the big things, one of the big things is that he starts to think about battle tactics and war. And then he starts to basically say that when you're an activist in society, you have to be able to choose between a different set of tactics. And it has, it's translated in different ways, but sometimes it's the war of maneuver, the war of position. And that one of them is sort of active, the other is more trench warfare. And then he uses that to then argue that these are the strategies, you know, basically other people will call it agonism versus antagonism or reform versus revolution, but breaks it down and says, and that's one thing that people draw from it is that actually taking the lessons from war and then using it in that strategy because in in some instances all-out war may be useful in others the strategic the patient game the maneuvering is far more important that even if you even if you're not winning immediately if you are planning for the future battle you are you are winning in the long run so getting it out getting it out of sort of the one-dimensional warfare getting it into a three-dimensional sort of uh, playing field but then also in terms of intellectuals and then in terms of common sense making so focusing people's attention on how it is that societies come to what is commonsensical so for example in here in uh, here in Guam you would never have a monument for Chamorros who dodge the draft <laughs> or Chamorros who refuse to fight in Vietnam you never would common sense here says we're a proud patriotic military supporting island it's in our culture some people say it's it's in our blood it's our debt to Uncle Sam in other countries you would never do something like that or you, in some countries you would never have those ideals the common sense is different, the values are different. In some places in Europe, for example, you will have statues for deserters, where people will celebrate those who protested war, who said, I will not die for your capitalist machine, I will not die, I will not be sent to war to make people rich, because the values are different. The society creates different ideas of what is normal and what is good and what is right, and one thing that Gramsci, and he wasn't the only one, but he draws our attention to is the making of the common sense, which you could basically refer to as hegemony. How is the common sense made? And that's sort of, that is in a way what makes so many of our decisions for us, right? Because we aren't people where like every moment of the day you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do this, I don't know if I should do that. But really, your identity comes with you and it makes most of your choices for you. And then you decide on a few things every day. But 
changing that set of common sense ideas is is what can lead a society closer to revolution. That's what that's what he would argue is replacing the common sense ideas, which are usually uh, those proposed by the powerful, the elites, changing them so that it increases the awareness of people about their about their situation and increases the likelihood that they will support changes in the society to overthrow that. Now, I said before that this is not a, this is not like a, a strict or a orthodox Marxist interpretation. And that's why Gramsci represents a shift where now if you, if you listen to what I said, I didn't say anything about the economy. <laughs> and that's the big change in Marx and where you move into post-Marxism is because Marx's big thing was the economy but people couldn't figure out, like, why is, it that, why is it that poor people don't understand they're getting screwed over? Like, why is it that poor people don't realize that if they all stick together and then the... Why is it that if they don't realize that if they all stuck together, then the rich couldn't oppress them? But if only some of them fight together and the others backstab those, then you can't get anywhere. Why is it they can't have this class consciousness to bring them together? And so this leads to then the, the move away from the, the strict economic interpretation of society because people are so much more than that, right? And in, in a sense, capitalism and culture become closely intertwined to the point where you justify your existence through all these cultural ideas. And I don't mean cultural in the sense of, of weaving, making tenactac or something like that but just cultural in sort of the larger sense that like, think about how, like if you think about the difference between our generation and then like our grandparents' generation, why was our grandparents' generation less willing to speak out about certain things? You could say culturally, right? Chamorros don't speak out. But then also religiously, Catholics, you're kind of supposed to suck it up you're supposed to suffer in a certain way and then feelings of respect you know feelings of loyalty to America not wanting to challenge certain things there's all of this texture in there but then for those of us today the cultural values is different the common sense is different about what a Chamorro can do what a Chamorro it's okay for a Chamorro to do what a strong Chamorro can do and that's, we talked about a little bit about that last week with Angel Santos, is that Angel Santos then changes the common sense about a Chamorro in society. He doesn't do it alone, but he becomes the symbol for that shift. And so these are, and so there's, there's a lot more in there and I'm not, and I'm leaving out some stuff, but, but anyways, it's just a general sort of overview about some of the things that we find in, in Gramsci. Um, but yeah, anyone's, anyone's thoughts on that? I talked way too long. No, yeah, that's, I, you know, well, first of all, Stacia just joined us as well. So, but I mean, that is, that is interesting. Um, not once did you mention the economy, and I guess, you know, um, God, I'm still trying to wrap my head around around like what I what I what I really want to say but um 
Yeah. I have I do have a tendency to look at things like economy first and then, you know, power and all those things and then how are people affected. Uh, but I mean that that's my base understanding of, of Marxism really uh, to blame. Uh, is looking at looking at economic um, uh, inequality. Um, and the thing is that there are responses. There's all sorts of responses to Gramsci. And then you find in Marxist thought, for example, you'll find some people who will just say that race is an invention to divide people by class, right? So even there was a famous black Marxist who tried to argue that race, is, race was just something to basically divide white workers and black workers after the Civil War. And so there's, there's certain truth, and so they say the same things about culture, about identity, about religion, like all of these things are illusions and it comes down to the economy. But the, the problem though is that it's not sufficient because people, no one ever just has one thought in their head. Like if we did, then maybe we would all be economic beings, but you don't, you don't define yourself in that way. You define yourselves in so many different ways and it's layered and textured as such that you cannot appeal to one of them without dealing with a bunch of the rest and that's the struggle of marxist of marxist thought communist thought and then critical just revolutionary radical thought is that how do you reach those people what rhetoric what arguments can you use what tactics can you use to try to reach them and it changes for every context, right? So in a way, for, and, and that's one of the things that we should, so when we read Angel Santos and his article from prison, and then we read Gramsci and his article from prison, his articles from prison, we see a similar approach. These are guys that are struggling with a lot of, they're on the edge of something big. They have helped or they are helping bring about a big change or something and they're writing about all this stuff which seems like historical details, but it's very, very important. Because what we never want to do is we never want to just say like, oh, well, whatever Gramsci did, we should just do that. Because even Gramsci, he, he wrote and he processed through his own context, and we have to follow that same model. So that's why Angel Santos, for example, was talking so much about the media in his piece is because at that time the media was, was, ve was very antagonistic to Nashon Chamorro and could be very antagonistic to, uh, to Angel Santos. And so he's bringing out that context and that's important because you need to understand your context or else you can't, you know, you can't win. It's kind of like, can you imagine what it would be like if you tried to win a battle by just reading a book? Step number one, attack. All right, you guys. Myla, Myla, Nita, Nita van Hano, Motna. Okay, yeah, yeah, let's, let's go. It says to attack. <laughs> Are you sure? But should we wait for daytime? No, it doesn't say anything about time. It just says attack. <laughs> wait, there's a, there's, a, there's a river between us and our opponent. Ah, that's a I mean, it just says attack. <laughs> let's, just, let's just do it. Oh, man. So, I mean, let, let's, let's dig in and let's try and apply the ideas of, of hegemony and the works of Gramsci to, to decolonization. I mean, that's why we're here, independent Wuhan. So when we think about hegemony, what are some ideas um, that are present today uh, that may seem like common sense and 
uh, make it so difficult for for people to overcome, you know, their their uh, uh, hesitance or hesitancy. I'm not making up words. What the fuck? <laughs> so, or so so what makes it so? Uh, yeah, apprehensive um, to to talk about decolonization. I think it's fading away. Uh, on a really quick note, I think that that's slowly. People can people can agree that we need to decolonize. Uh, whether, but I mean, like they're they're still stuck on the idea of uh, whether it should be through statehood or independence or free association. Because there, because again, there's still th this commonsensical idea that um, you know we are nothing without America. You know, so uh, aside from that, are there any other common sense ideas out there that make it so difficult for us? Uh, well, I've been, as as a new teacher in the secondary in the secondary uh, uh, realm, you know, yeah, common sense. We're talking, we, you know, uh, it's. Well, I was talking about education, right? So it's common sense that you can, you know, in my context, learn like to learn other subjects in. Uh, in Chamorro, so um, I've been working closely with uh, with the Horal Academy, and and um, now we're finally uh, starting to implement, you know, uh, the immersion school, and uh, hopefully next next year in August, so they're going to start up with a a, a, a fresh uh, a batch of uh, kindergarten students, and they're going to start teaching teaching math in Chumoro, teach science in Chumoro, teach social studies in Chumoro, because the common sense idea before was like, you can't learn social studies in Chumoro, what the heck, you can't learn science in Chumoro, so, so we're, 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 we're slowly following, uh, following suit and, and kind of, uh, breaking those, those boundaries in terms of what is common sense, and I've been trying to, uh, show my my students about that because I've, I've i've been hearing like you know comments like you know like uh about about just the idea of those things happening you know people 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 are still like kind of like weary like really you can do that in tomorrow like can nice yeah so and you know we have like uh nihi but you know, there's so much more other things that, that need to be pushed forward, you know. So, um, uh, huh? No, that's my before I hand it off to Stasia, I just want to say, um, uh, Gregorio Eckley, who found himself in, uh, in, you know, hot media waters, uh, earlier this year, um, you know, I, I want to say too, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, really quick, I'm, a, I'm about to go down, uh, on a side, on a side note here, but, so, Gregorio Eckley, if you're not familiar, earlier this year, uh, he's a Chamorro teacher at Southern High School, and, um, one of his students, uh, recorded one of his, uh, his, uh, I don't want to say rants, I'm going to say lectures about uh, um, the, the wrongs of America and our, our political status. So he was going he was going on on his lecture about all these things, and uh, the mother of the student was offended by it. Um, and, uh, you know, she called him things like anti-American and what have you, and she went as far as to report him to um, the administration of Guam DOE, and then also um, she shared uh, the, the recording with um, the Guam Daily Post and other media outlets um, and 
God, it was so disgusting seeing some of uh, the responses on on social media to uh, you know what he was doing. People were saying things uh, again like, uh, "Oh, this is not the time or the place to discuss politics in Chamorro class." Like, you know, Chamorro belongs in this in this vacuum. You know, you can only discuss your language, and you can't discuss uh, you know why you know it. And uh, yeah, also too. Um, before I saw uh, Greg's uh, picture, I I assumed. You know, because of, of hegemony and my own preconception of uh, what a Chamorro teacher was, <laughs> I thought he was an old man. <laughs> so, Gregorio, <laughs> I thought he was an old dude. Yeah, exactly. So, that, that's all I wanted to say. Uh, but yeah, Stasia, so, um, ideas, uh, common sense ideas, uh, hegemony, and things of that nature. Because you've, uh, you've sometimes referred to some of the conversations with your family about sort of these sort these issues and so a lot of that comes from sort of that uh the common sense about what decolonization is or what independence is and so on so yeah, um i'm not sure if this common sense sickle but what something that comes to mind is like um oh like if if you want to decolonize you're ungrateful for america I feel like, I mean, that can go a little bit abstract, but I feel like that's something I, I've been hearing. I don't know, I just, I don't know, I just feel like it's not like, you're not, it's not that people who want to decolonize are ungrateful for America, it's, you know, it's just realizing that, you know, there's more to life than just where, how our environment on island is right now. And, I don't know. I don't know if that's, I don't know, because I always tend to have very, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another, like, commonsensical thing. I don't know. That makes sense. I mean, because, so, when we're talking about hegemony, it's kind of have to abandon a, a purist sense, right? You can't, because you can't focus only on one facet of life. You can't basically, like, Donald Trump has completely re revamped everything. All, so many of the things that he does would previously be unthinkable for a president to do, but he just does them. And then, this, 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 the, so he basically slams aside that, and because of where he is positioned politically, where Republicans are, where white Americans are, where the discourse on race in the United States is, where discourse on gender is on the United States, he can push aside things and then he actually can create to an extent sort of what is hegemonic. But there's responses, there's reactions. And so the, the hashtag Me Too movement and a lot of the stuff about sexual harassment is a response to Trump. So Trump can basically win, he can win in some ways, especially around his political power, but it r creates responses where he, what he had was this ragtag coalition, and the more he does in one sense, the more he loses pieces of his coalition. So one of the big things that scares Republicans now is women leaving the party more and more because you know, you, you've elected a guy who, who bragged that he could grab women by the pussy. How he does that, really quick, um, the Overton window. Yeah, I, 
I just watched a, a Vox video about that. So uh, essentially what the Overton window means is that um, things that were once um, like, un, like unimaginable um, are normalized because what is acceptable is uh, constantly being shifted to new extremes. So, um, and that, that happens through mainstream media's uh, focus on certain issues. But then also, like, since we're talking about Donald Trump, you know, when he says outrageous things like grabbing women by the pussy, um, you know, we know the extent of his absurdity. So now when something happens like, uh, you know, the, the Republican uh, tax, tax reform, you know, um, taking money from, from uh, lower socioeconomic classes and then giving uh, the rich uh, tax, major tax cuts, those, those are things that, be, that are passed over and um, that are, you know, now people are like, yeah, you know, what can we do? It's, it's Trump. It's not as crazy. Yeah, the, so that's the idea of the Overton window. So yeah, Overton, yeah. Ovaltine, huh? hot chocolate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, Stasia looks confused. Are you too young for Ovaltine? I think. I get it, I'm younger than you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah. So, interesting. One one of the uh, the battalions or one of the mercenary forces that we haven't tapped into, I think, um, is uh, the LGBT community and uh, LGBT LGBT struggles. And um, you know, we need to find ways to to connect to those to what we do more. You know, I mean, I don't know. Are there are there ideas floating around or? Or yeah, or I mean, like we, we did talk about proteolotectin, and um, there there is a, uh, I don't know, am I saying too much by by talking about how the limits of uh, anti-militarism sort of stretch the the boundaries for protehi? Is that saying too much, or? You don't have to talk there. The internal politics of the group. You can pass the mic to Andrew. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, so, <laughs> oh, okay, I guess uh, there's a clap there, I'll, I'll, you know what to do. all right, fine, <laughs> so, Andrew, let's talk uh, music, and, <laughs> go ahead, shit, big shit, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I've been, it's been a while, okay, music, okay. Oh, no, I'm just joking around, man, but, I mean, Obviously, there there's a lot to, to to think about, and especially when we when we talk about um you know organizing and a strategy, um, there must be some like really big big ideas, big concepts floating around. Um, do you care to conceptualize any of those for us? Or? Uh, not right now. <laughs> Stage. What? Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, so here. So here, let's, let's think about it like this, because Manny was bringing up a good point. So if we think about it as the struggle for, let's say, decolonization, so we imagine it, so in a way, this is a struggle we're all engaged in. We are all on the side which is pushing for basically this idea that decolonization is good and it is normal and we have had some successes. We build off the movements of OPIR, of Nashon Chamorro, and others in the past, and we keep pushing, and we're making gains. 
The question, though, is, because even movements change, movements disappear, just as groups appear, succeed, disappear, and fade. And so as we push closer and as we sort of gain more momentum, who should we reach out to? Who are the forces? Because that's, that's the thing about, about this battlefield, is this battlefield is not like Braveheart, where you've got one side here, one side there. This is like a, this is like a battlefield where you've got like most of the people standing there waiting to join a side. And they may join a side for a day, and then they may say, you know what, uh, screw this, I don't care anymore. Or they may join one side one day, and then something happens, and then they switch to the other side. Because that's how societies work, right? Is that the majority of the people don't actually care about most anything. The majority of the people are sad because there's no Game of Thrones right now. The majority are, are have nothing to watch on Netflix or like me the majority of the people are waiting for the next switch game to come out because I played all of the switch games that exist now and Nintendo releases games so slowly and so the issue then is and this is a big shift from before as before Marx made it seem like revolution was gonna happen because capitalism is so bad it's just gonna happen. So you just need to keep making, keep trying to create the conditions for revolution to happen. It doesn't really work like that. You can't convince everybody in a society to, to follow your side necessarily. You can't get everybody to become a revolutionary because in every revolutionary moment, you may have people that are totally on one side and then you have a bunch of people who come at the last minute or who shift which, whichever way the flags shift or the tides shift. And so for us, if, we looking, if we're looking at sort of this field of battle and people that are on our side as pushing for decolonization, who would be good to try to get to join our coalition? Who do you think would, be, would, would help, help it become a more durable hegemony, a more long-lasting, far-reaching hegemony. So who, out of all of the people in Guam, all of the different groups of identity groups, and it doesn't have to be an official group, it can be a type, a demographic, who do you think? Mm, I don't... <sighs> the first thing that comes to mind is um, Outer Island people. They're so marginalized here. It's, um, you know, like, and it's not right. <laughs> and, you know, whatever we're striving for will benefit them too. Because it's a more equal endeavor, you know, like equality. You know, we're not trying to say, like, I mean, the only thing that seems like it's very, the only thing that seems commonsensical is the whole plebiscite thing, you know? It's like, it seems so racialized, but it's like, you know, if the people who are the native inhabitants want to like choose that, then that. But that doesn't mean that they don't. But then they want you. You know, like there are people who are native inhabitants that want everyone to be able to live on this island equally. You know, so it's like I don't know. It's just like I know that's a little bit tough to like to be able to collaborate and to join forces with. You know the outer island community because of that difficulty of addressing that 
whole plebiscite thing, you know, with the racial. Like, I think we just need to talk and have discussions more with our, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters that, you know, this is not the issue at hand. This is, this is like the face value perception of it, but, you know, there's, you know, the actual issue is this and, you know, like, together we can, like, address that and, you know, it won't have to be that way after, like, I don't know. But, like, I just think that because, like, you know, like, yeah, it's, you know, just because they're not from here doesn't mean it's not their island too. <laughs> we're, we're the Marianas. <laughs> That is, that's an excellent point. Um, yeah, um, yeah, hegemony again. Like so, the idea for for a while, or maybe it still is the the idea, the popular idea of the plebiscite was that it's race based due to the federal ruling. The the federal ruling gave that concept, the idea of it being race based, legitimacy, uh, in a sense, you know. But by by partnering, um, by by uh, forming a coalition with uh, our Micronesian brothers and sisters, we challenge that that idea. We say um, no, it's not race-based. We uh, Micronesians, other Micronesians, we, we support much um, more people having a, a vote of self-determination, and it has nothing to do with race. And in fact, we actually feel more protected by the Chamorro, the Pacific Islander notion of ancestry and uh, and identity than we do by uh, American legal definitions. You know, it's not even like our island or people that you know. I'm pretty sure there's people who are you know that don't qualify or like that are not like you know this says to be able to vote on the plebiscite. But like, I'm pretty sure they f they understand and they resonate with like you know if that was my island too like that makes sense you know like I think I just feel like you know because you know like my <laughs> Canadians are more cultured so I think they would understand like more like a uh, counter hegemony uh, challenging the idea that islands are isolated but in fact that we are connected by the ocean so that's really awesome. No, that's just, I'm just joking. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, in response to what you're saying about, like, you know, we are connected. Because, like, if you think of it literally, it's so crazy, right? Because we get so, like, like co so caught up in, you know, just Guam, right? But then we forget to realize, you know, like, we have, you know, fellow brothers and sisters in other lands that are going through struggles, and there's some of them are similar, some of them are different, but, you know, it's like, we're all like we're all we're not here presently together like physically but you know we're all like we all experience things we're going through it so. you know all this talk about um uh changing battlefields and coalitions battalions um the idea oh yeah star wars but the idea that that came to mind was um you know the battle of uh isengard no not isengard <laughs> but the riders of rohan coming down the hill <laughs> you know which one? Um, oh God! What is it called? Helm's Deep. Yes. There's the Plenner Fields, which is the last one. Yeah. Oh, I, w I was thinking of uh, Helm's Deep and the the Riders of Rohan coming down the hill, and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, the Micronesian Battalion is is coming down there. We're in the thick of uh, of decolonial activism, and they just come in and swoop. 
they're like, no, it's not about race, you you fuckers. <laughs> like, uh, we 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 feel protected by. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's a perfect that's a perfect example because. Or the 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 card game that I play now is Hearthstone, based on World of Warcraft. What's that? No, no, that's the. Oh, that's a different game. That's. <laughs> but so if you're putting together a deck, you can kind of create a deck based on what you want to have in your deck, right? So, like, that's what my son does when he puts together a deck, is my son looks at all the cards that he thinks are awesome, and then he puts them in his deck. Now, he doesn't win very often with a deck like that, because he's not thinking about really how the cards work together. He's not thinking about what types of decks he might encounter when he plays online. He's just thinking about what he wants, and what's cool, and what he, what he likes, what's fun. So he's, he's not, it's not effective. Activists are the same way. If you surround yourself only with those people who you really like and you really agree with, and, you're, and it's focused on what you want, you won't get very far. But if you mix it up so you think about what are the decks that you're gonna find out there, and you prepare and you think, I need to have these cards, because this car these cards will protect me against those types of deck. These cards work really well together. And sometimes, and so that's the idea that they call the meta. The meta or the meta game is, is basically the way that people at this moment, and you could say that the meta is important for understanding hegemony. Because these are the styles which are powerful. These are the decks that are powerful. And you need to know that so you can create a deck which is anti-meta, which totally pushes back and undoes the meta. And it is possible to beat the strongest decks with a anti-meta deck, which is totally makes no sense in another context, but in this particular context will slay the strongest type of deck. And so this is why, of course, yeah, so really, I just do this stuff because I like to talk about video games, apparently. <laughs> but so, but so, these are all metaphors. And so, see this, but this is, in Gramsci's time, he used military stuff. It's very relevant. But for us, we can draw from anything. We can look at other struggles. We could talk about video games. You could even use movies if you wanted to in some way. But where is your inspiration for, for understanding the structure of your situation? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think I, I draw a lot of inspiration from video games as well. Uh, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I have a fascination with Assassin's Creed. Um, but then also, also these uh, grand epic movies or trilogies like uh, Lord of the Rings, all these you know sagas like that. Um, yeah, man. I don't know. Inspiration, Andrew. Ooh, uh, inspiration. Um, well, being a singer, it's always been music, uh, uh, and using that to, I guess. find some sort of um, fanaticism to, to cling on to, 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 uh, to pour out uh, 
and to kind of collect uh, uh, an inspir an inspiration that that drives you forward and in um in in uh, decolonial thought uh, and just building rela building relationships because you know uh, I found that you know just be you know um, by by singing by performing you know I, I, I interact with so with with a generation that that um, that otherwise I would never interact with and I learned their stories and I learned their perspective of of uh, what music is to them and how they and how they contextualize it in um, as a as a performer as as a Pacific Islander yeah mm. so all right okay so you were talking about how um, like um, the the confidence of, of one battalion you know sort of it it gives com it sheds confidence uh, on like other other existing groups, right? And, and is, I, I noticed one of the italicized words there was esprit de corps. Is that what that's in reference to? Sort of? Or not, not, not explicitly. Okay. That was just, so that was just me extrapolating uh, sort of on, on the, the basic ideas. Um, but yeah, you just have to, and, and what, I'll, what I will always remind people about is like, you don't have to, like you should read Gramsci, but you don't have to take Gramsci as as a Bible or something like that. Just like what Gramsci was arguing was, don't take Marx as the Bible, because one thing that we forget, like, and this was the real struggle, was that Marx's Marx's philosophy was like, in a way, it was like this progressive, critical, radical, like, drug. It was super exciting because it was like a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mark said, this is where we've come from. This is the chaotic middle of the movie with the suffering. And then at the end, we will have the revolution and, and good will win, yeah. right? But then, of course, it's not really like that. And that's what people struggle with is this idea that Marx was still arguing that there's an end like in the way in which if you read the Bible, there's an end and then we all go to heaven or some of us don't go to heaven. I probably wouldn't go to heaven. But, <laughs> but um, and so Gramsci in a way is kind of, and others were getting rid of those ideas that there's an end to the battle, that you have a final victory and instead creating an organic understanding in which you win some days, you lose some days. But that it is far better to understand the game rather than sort of and pretend you're playing a completely different game. Understand how this game is played rather than just pretend that you it is you know you're you're doing something else entirely, which in a way people felt like they were doing when they were trying to bring about Marx's revolutions is that it it just wasn't working. It didn't make any sense. So uh, I'm still trying to get through the Antipa handbook. <laughs> it's been months, but like I, I've been caught up with other readings for all these different proposals that I've been putting together. But um, 
I'm at uh, a section of the book where they talk about a similar problem that you know activist groups here on Guam have faced, and that's the idea that um, every time fascism recedes, so too does anti-fascist organizations. And I can see how um, you know, like like a, a pure Marxism, they're sort of one-dimensional, you know. And uh, I guess that's the importance, again, of forming these coalitions and, um, you know, having these, uh, drawing the connections to, to different movements and, and what have you. Um, Reminds me of Star Wars. As darkness rises, the light rises to meet it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, as Kylo Ren emerges in the dark side, Ray rises from the light to meet it. <laughs> nice. But yeah, uh, would I be jumping um, too far ahead to like bring up Stuart Hall? I mean, um, like in what ways? Because I've read very, very little of Stuart Hall, but I do know that um, he sort of uh, progressed the uh, the ideas of Gramsci, and I was just curious uh, in in what ways particularly are is Stuart Hall most uh, most famous for for you know progressing Gramsci's ideas? And so um, there's a couple of different ways that I would see that. Um, I have not read Stuart Hall in quite a while, but one of the things that we find in him is, is first of all, he, he, Gramsci is somebody, he's, he's like a political thinker, not necessarily an academic per se, and so Hall does do things to kind of formalize what Gramsci's talking about and kind of take it out of the historical moment and then try to create it in a more universal basic context but Gramsci, I mean, the Hall is also important because of connecting it to the media, connecting it to representations in society. And so, because um, if we think about it, for example, <clears throat> so much of what we're talking about isn't, isn't consciously thought about, it's just absorbed, right? And, and it's absorbed in small pieces phrases and images and so um so if you think about like um what roland bart kind of talks about then in terms of uh signs and mythology semiotics and so on hall is is kind of making that connection and in my opinion he's a lot less dense than some of those french guys who talk about similar things which which is why people are really drawn to hall and um but yes, so really trying to bring it out about sort of understanding the role of media in creating common sense. So like for example, um, what was it? I remember reading a piece by him on, on like a policing the crisis and about mugging and talking about sort of societies and the role of the media in creating a sense of danger, right? And creating a sense of danger attached to particular bodies so that it is so that because if you think about it, police force, um, think about the way it is in which if, um, if, if there's some police crackdown or police violence in, a, in, in Guam where there's a lot of Chukese people or in the states where there's a lot of Latinos or black people. But then if you have the same thing in a place where there's affluent white people or affluent Chamorro people, suddenly then it doesn't feel right, it's wrong. Like, or it's, it's unique and it's exceptional act. 
And so the way the media, the role the media plays in, in producing frames or ideas, um, which kind of keep, keep a certain structure to society, prevent it from changing, sort of continuing sort of uh, oppression or discrimination on certain people. And so I, I remember uh, a lot of that from Stuart Hall. And so uh, very relevant for you in sort of the, what you're hoping for in grad school. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I don't know. There <laughs> apparently there's some, there's some distinction between like uh, critical discourse analysis and then like what Stuart Hall does. I haven't found it yet because it seems like they all do the same thing in, in uh, analyzing these signs. Huh? Oh, Stuart Hall, he was, shoot, was he... Jamaican? No, he was a, yes, he was, he was a Caribbean social scientist. And so um, we were just kind of talking about some of the stuff that he did in terms of connecting the ideas of Gramsci to media analysis. But um, yeah, what Manny is talking about though is how um, in academia, you really want to give a name to something <laughs> to kind of make your career. And so a lot of people will do similar things, but they'll call it different things. And then you kind of align yourself in conversations based on the words that you use for it. So what somebody will call a lens, somebody else may call a trope, somebody else may call a frame somebody else may call a discourse or a narrative or, or a sign, a semiotic sign, a signified, like all of these different things are not necessarily the same thing, but they, can, they definitely overlap in analysis, but you place yourself in where you situate it, or you place yourself in which one that you use. So, and what he was talking about is that he, he doesn't quite understand what's the difference between these things, but for certain academics, it's like these are totally different. So, like if your average student at UOG may read something from like Jacques Lacan, who's this dead French psychoanalyst theorist guy, and then Jacques Derrida, who's this dead French deconstructionist philosopher guy. And for somebody here, they may sound exactly the same. They're crazy. This doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. But then there's completely different traditions for those two thoughts. So you have to talk about them very differently. You have to use different words for them, even though they're very much part of the same conversation. They just came at it from, from different angles, but we're talking about the same things. How far did we get? What? <laughs> I was just, I'm just rambling uh, so. while, you were, while you were gone. Okay. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, man, I missed it. Yeah. I was, I was reenacting that scene from Eight Mile. <laughs> oh, man. But I, think, I think we can wrap it up. That was a lot of me talking. Yeah, that was, that was good. I mean, we'll definitely upload this. And uh, one of the ideas I just had was that we should definitely um, make the reading list available to our Patreon. Um, subscribers, you know, so there, there's still 10, no, we've kind of, <laughs> I don't know, like, I didn't know, sorry, yeah, no, so we, we do have 10, uh, loyal, uh, patrons, are there, like, any locals, or, oh, yeah, 
Alex, we, we shouldn't reveal their identity. We should not, well, no. I'm just curious, like, who's, like, subscribed? Yeah. Uh, we have a, a Chinese uh, Bitcoin uh, multi-billionaire um, who... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's all these things that, you know, we we need to do, we must do, for, for you guys, the listeners. What was that, Steve? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm oh, sorry. I transitioned to, to, to internal discussion. Yeah, no, this is this is good. Um, you know, damn, we we should we should seriously just have like T-shirts that just say hegemony or like or just uh, stickers. Counter hegemony. Or counter hegemony. Yeah, like stickers we just like post up everywhere. Like, I don't know. Yeah, because it's in, it's in all things really. I mean. Hegemony now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Germany now. <laughs> yeah. No, no, what's up? Which one? Devil be gone or? No, like, oh, oh, why am I thinking of Calgon take me away? Why am I thinking? Germany take me away. Oh man. Yeah, and I mean, like, a really quick shout out to. I know we're not we're not sponsored or anything, but obviously we're in a coffee shop called Coffee Slut. And in a way that's sort of a, it's counter hegemony, you know, uh, it, it pushes the boundaries of what is acceptable, you know, what, what does it mean to be a slut, you know, and that is true. Okay. Now, now I understand what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, a larger counter hegemonic movement. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of sexualized images, but I mean, I mean, I know. Okay, 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 fine, all right. All right, sorry. I'm, I'm boring everyone. And <laughs> you say for off the record. Yeah, okay. So is this Fanatsu or the. This is Fanatsu. Okay, because you have two, right? Two different ones. I do. I haven't shown uh, Native Perspectives love in a long time, but <laughs> it's been a while. I need to get back on that. But yeah, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'll upload this as soon as possible. Uh, make this available to you, especially if you do already have the reading list. Um, this might be helpful to you, especially if you're, you're trying to follow along and you can't make it. If you can, though, next Thursday, same spot, same time, Coffee Slut here in Haganya at 6 p.m. Uh, yeah, thanks. Jesus Masi. Ihinanganya independent guahan. Para ba inafan matakna yaman tomoro. Para tatuli tati idiretsota komo unnashon gihilutano. Gini minetgut niha yamanyanata. Jani guinezata no ifamago umtamotna. Ina kekefan manungo. Jana kekefanet don todu itoto siha. Ni manyasaga gi ininatano. Para tanat let fetna ida guahan. Ni todu ininasenyata. Kosiki senior tough and lot la maulet motna. Fanatsu, heat the lot